everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This episode is continuing our discussion of films of 1994. I'm your host, Michael. Jacob's on the other side. Hello, everybody. I'm still here. It's nice and sunny where I'm at now, but still chilly. You butthole. I, I, need, I, I need lotion. My skin is drying. Like, unbearably drying. Like, to the point where I'm getting little cuts. I'm like, ah! When I was so out there... When I was out there, I think I utilized my leather coat maybe two weeks out of the entire time I was there. That wouldn't even be close enough for anything right now. That leather coat would be ripped through by the wind instantly. Oh, oh my gosh. It's pretty you brutal. Know, yeah. I saw a video once of like someone taking like a wet shirt out in Antarctica. They put it out there for a couple minutes and the shirt was frozen. Yeah. It's, it's no, yeah, well, I mean, like, what, a month ago, it was 17 degrees below or something like that, wind chill, 35 degrees below wind chill, that was the most brutal, I mean, I had three pairs of socks on, two pairs of pants, like, sleep pants under my, oh, under my, uh, regular pants, like, two layers of shirts, two hoodies, and I was still just, like, so insanely uncomfortable. This has nothing to do with the episode, how about we get to the discussion of movies? <laughs> made brad pitt a star everybody talks about interview with the vampire that really what it's hard to say that was his movie alone it was sold because of tom cruise brad pitt was like people were talking about him but all the movies he did before this tanked you know cool world california and i think there's another one in there somewhere um they just didn't do very well he got some acclaim, of course, because of, uh, of the, the river runs through it, but that didn't make a lot of money. And then Thelma Louise, but he's only in it for, what, five minutes, ten minutes at most? And and they do this on a regular basis where they try to find something to make this actor, who has got some heat on him, a star, a legitimate A-lister. And Legends of the Fall didn't make as much money as uh, um, Interview with the Vampire, in, Interview with the Vampire, but... It is his film. This is an epic star making. This feels like it's out of the fifties or sixties. You know they would do with one, those stars back then. Right. Uh, again, watching how this movie did progress, like you can definitely see uh, Brad Pitt's like dramatic talent just really come to fruition. Especially when he's trying to rescue Samuel, uh, played by. Oh, why am I blanking on his name? He was um, Elliot in E.T. Right, Henry Thomas. Yes, Henry Thomas, yes. But he's trying to save Henry Thomas, and in that moment, he's just, like, crying out and just absolutely anxious and fear, not caring whatever's in his way, just to save his little brother. Yeah, uh, it's... it's Henry Thomas is only in maybe 15, 20 minutes of it, but his role is absolutely critical to steering the rest of the film. And it takes place over, like, a 50-year period of time where it's pre-World War One. You know, we're on the, ed, the end of, like, the Old West kind of thing. And we're progressing through World War One, you know, and in the Depression and stuff like that, and then just bounces through time as you revisit Brad Pitt, Anthony Hopkins, and Aidan Quinn and their relationship through the years. And it's a, it's a true struggle because he has, I guess, what you would call PTSD back then, or, or you call it now, but it didn't have a word for it back then. Right. Yes. Um, you definitely see that, especially, you know. Um, Samuel, oh God, Henry Thomas's character wanted to like join in on World War One, and his dad was like, you know, furiously against it. He doesn't again considering that 
that he doesn't want to, them to endure what he went through. And from what we can tell, especially like through the narrator uh, of the film, like yeah, no, he was again, especially in, like you said at the end of like the old Wild West uh, era. Uh, everything's becoming more established. Everything's um, starting to gain. Uh, like more cities are being developed, and yeah, we can definitely tell considering Anthony Hopkins' character had done, you know, in you know practically wiping out like indigenous peoples. Yeah, and why he just like wanted nothing to do with uh, U.S. military or anything about it because it's like, dude, this is what like what ultimately will end up being. So he doesn't want to pass that on to his sons or have his sons get involved with that. So like considering like the scale of that war, again, he could only, again, Anthony Hopkins could have only been done so much considering um, Henry Thomas was so stubborn, like his father. Mm-hmm. And again, just to see their characters just ripped apart as these events are continue, are going on. It's, you know, himself is like pointing out how like the rift between Aiden Quinn and Brad Pitt was getting uh, further. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, a lot of this is you have three brothers vying for the same woman, and that's another thing that tears them apart. The, the shit that she goes through is insane. And I'm going to tell you right now, this is not a happy ending movie. This is full-on drama. It is hard shit to take. So if you're not prepared to deal with a lot of death, some truly tragic, it's going to be harder to get through, I think, for you. But it is a story worth telling. Uh, I'm glad. The, the director, Edward Zwick, he's not as prestige as, as he used to be. Um because I think like he had too many flops and he started doing some other stuff. But um, this is a guy who uh, had just come off of Glory and would do Courage Under Fire and The Siege and, and Last Samurai, Blood Diamond, you know, that kind of stuff that's really big, epic storytelling. And I don't know what director we have like that anymore that tells these huge stories. Oh, gosh. I think the only person who's ever come capable of it was like Spielberg or perhaps... Oh, God, you... Maybe Michael Mann with Master of the Mohicans, but... Yeah, okay, Michael Mann I'll give, yeah. Yeah, other than that, I can't really count... Nothing else really comes to mind right now. Yeah, it's just, I think if it was in lesser hands, I don't know if the story would have worked as well, because it could have been played over dramatic like a soap opera. And it has, I think, like the bare bones of like one of those old miniseries like North and South or, you know, Dynasty Dallas kind of feel to it. But it took a really good director and a really good script, honestly, to make this all work. And it is, it, like I said, it's very hard to take because there's a lot of death in it, and uh, it's it's truly tragic. Yeah, but like as it got closer to the end, though, um, that one final little showdown, Aiden Quinn, like, did show up for the family, and uh, yeah, it was nice to see some of those people hyped there. Considering one particular character they killed off earlier, I'm like, good. Yeah, like, it's them, Aiden Quinn. Happen. Aiden Quinn is interesting because there was a point where in the 80s he was introduced as like a new James Dean kind of guy and it just didn't happen. He got to star in a few movies around this time but his star faded almost immediately after I don't know what he starred in afterwards. Now he's just like one of those character actors. So, I mean, more power to him though. If he's getting work, he's getting work. No, absolutely, yes. Uh, 
again, I feel like he did have the particular look he would be known for, like his odd, his eyes for sure. Yeah. The uh, what is the next film we're discussing? Uh, the next film I wanted to discuss was another big drama, and again, childhood classic. Always grew up watching this. My grandmother loved it. Uh, then again, it was Tom Hanks who couldn't love him. Forrest Gump by yeah. Robert Zemeckis. I think this movie gets a lot of bad rap for two reasons. A, it was so entrenched in our vernacular for so many years. You know, run, Forrest, run, Jane, you know, life's like a box of chocolates. Oh, yes. Oh, God, that would be constant. Yeah, so I can see people getting sick of it from that viewpoint. And B, it beat out a lot a lot of movies, I think, that might have been better. And, and I think that's what pissed people off is that it's kind of like this big Hollywood saccharine suite, whereas there was other movies that were kind of bucking the system you know, like uh, Shawshank and Pulp Fiction and Ed Wood and stuff like that. But you have to remember, the Academy isn't you. It is a group of people, you know, that are in the film industry. And what happens usually is the cool movies cancel each other out because they get just enough votes, you know, to beat each other, but never beat the one that's right in the middle that just pleases everybody. And I think that's where a lot of the hate comes from. I do not think Forrest Gump is a bad movie. I actually quite enjoy the movie. I love what the vision that, uh, you know, that Winston Groom and Robert Zemeckis had for this character. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And again, Tom Hanks just never, uh, I don't think he could ever phone it in. He always does just a fantastic job. And even, even Tropic Thunder kind of pointed out, like, his style of like going with this kind of character I mean there was clearly a nod to that oh yeah yeah I mean and, and it, it is a very delicate way to make a movie starring someone with special needs without insulting it making it a, a character how do you say it like uh, a caricature yeah it's I'm trying to think of a better word for it denigrating I guess you know stereotyping yeah and it's a very fine line with that. I think they do the best they can. Some of it's a little cringeworthy. And I think if if Tom Hanks hadn't played the character with love and respect, as if he was just poking fun at him, I don't think it would have worked anywhere nearly as well. Oh, God, no. Look at Sean Penn and I am Sam. Look at that turned out. Yeah. The, oh, uh, the one thing that doesn't work for me and I think is unnecessary now, but I know why Zemeckis did it, because he wanted to push the boundaries of technology. And it's usually... That's a, Zemeckis seems to be more interested in the technology than the story, and I think sometimes that can trip him up, is uh, the flashback scenes or whatever. When he meets celebrities and they incorporate footage of Forrest Gump into it, I don't think that works. I never thought it really worked. Yeah, no, honestly, especially like watching it, it would be hard to tell that you know that was fake because it was so well done. The this, the one scene that's so clumsy, though, is the one where he's in the interview and John Lennon's sitting next to him and they're talking about, you know, the words that eventually become imagined. I was like, oh, that's shit. That, that is a shit scene. <laughs> oh, God, I, I know. <laughs> but Sally Field is so good in it. Uh, Robin uh, Wright Penn, Gary Sinise, holy shit, he almost steals the whole fucking movie. Oh, absolutely. As Lieutenant Dan, my gosh. I do feel kind of bad for McKelty Williamson, though. He doesn't get much to do. Though it did give him work later, so, you know, I guess it worked out. Right. McKelty Williams. That's Ooh. Bubba, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, no. Oh, my God. Yeah, seriously. Even for, like, what screen, amount of screen time he had, he had such a huge influence on Forrest. You cannot deny that. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, oh, have I, you ever been to Bubba Gump's? 
No, I've always wanted to try. We we used to when I lived in Monterey, we would eat there occasionally, and um, they play the Forrest Gump soundtrack and the movie all day long. And if I was an employee of that place, I would fucking lose my mind. (laughs) Right. I mean, it would depend on. I mean, the movie. No, the soundtrack. I'm like, it's a good soundtrack. I like it. Yeah, but Uh, it's only two CDs, and you're playing those same songs over and over and over. Holy shit. They really got to switch it up. Uh huh. Yeah. I couldn't do that. No, I mean, oh god. Even when I worked at a hardware store, and oh god, the Christmas playlist was the same again and again. And hearing Mariah Carey, he's all I want for Christmas is you. If I ever hear, oh, um, I'm on a hippopotamus for Christmas or whatever that is. Uh, all no, you don't. For... It will eat you alive, child. Yeah. <laughs> well, one more thing I do want to say about that movie: the ending when you know Forrest is dropping off his son. You know, saying I'll be here for, I'll be here waiting for you. You know, then he gets picked up on the bus, and it's the same bus driver. And she oh, yeah. recognizes the name Forrest Gump Jr., and she's like, "All right, come on in." <laughs> she, you can tell she looks out for him. The uh, I think I think that it's just a fun adventure to go through time. It's a what do you call that? A Zigfield? I think uh, uh, Zilik. Whatever. Woody Allen made a movie in the uh, 80s where that kind of thing happened, where it was a famous person, or a guy who ended up in all these famous things that happened throughout time. So, um, I don't know what else to say about this. This is like one of those ubiquitous, massive hits. Everybody's seen it, but I think a lot of people overhate it. Oh, absolutely, yes. They talked about uh, doing a sequel, because there is a sequel book that take that goes from like 1982 to 1997 or something like that. I don't want them to ever do that. I just leave it yeah, no. Yeah, leave leave it where it is. It doesn't need to be touched upon. That was a perfect way to end it. And again, the parts with Jenny and uh, his mom passing just oof, yeah, the Ripley really part. Hurt. He, he found a really good balance of comedy and um, drama. I mean, it really pulls your heartstrings. The score, the holy shit, that score by Alan Silvestri. Ugh. Gotta love Alan Silvestri. Yep. Like, oh my god, so many movies he's been involved with. He did Back to the Future. He's done the Avengers. Um, he also did the first Captain America film. Uh, There's something else he did recently. Oh yeah, Ready Player One. Okay. I was. I just saw something. I was kind of surprised they spent the money on his. You know, because it looked like it was kind of a lower budget movie. I'm gonna cheat and look. But um. <laughs> you go ahead. What, what is the? What else did you want to say about this movie? Or do you want to move on? Uh, I I want to move on. That was the last thing I okay. could have said. That was such a sweet ending. Next. Okay, next movie. Okay, now we're getting a little bit more comedic and fun and upbeat. This was another big hit for Jim Carrey, and it's one of my favorites growing up, The Mask. And it was based off a Dark Horse comic, if I'm correct? Yes. Actually, yeah, this is when Dark Horse, they had a deal with Universal, or Largo is what I should say. Um, And the first one was Dr. Giggles, which is weird, because the first Dark Horse comics movie is not based on an actual comic book. It's just from the guy who owned and ran Dark Horse. He just wrote the script with a friend of his. And then uh, they ended up having a a deal with Universal for years. And if they passed on any project, they could shop it around to someone else. Well, they passed on The Mask, which is a huge fucking mistake. (laughs) And then New Line Cinema got it. Yeah, good on New Line Cinema, my God. New Line Cinema did that, Blade, and, oh god, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, there was a time when New Line Cinema was the hot up-and-comer, and then they just had too many flops, they overextended themselves financially, and it cost them, and Warner Brothers said, nope, no more, you're done, we're running this. Oh, they also did Mortal Kombat as well. Though. Yeah, um, Alan Silvestri, that's what I was looking at. I watched, um, 
sidekicks. You know the Charles Bronson or not Charles Bronson, Chuck Norris uh, movie where the kid. Yes. Yeah, that, that movie's not good, but that score is great. Wow. Even if he did a bad movie, oh no! Like if there's an Alan Silvestri score, he'll make something out of it. Yeah, yeah. The uh, so yeah, the mask ended up at New Line Cinema, and I remember at the time reading in like Cinema Scope or whatever. I can't remember the the name of the magazine was Starlog maybe. Um, where they said this is our biggest risk. We're spending a twenty three million dollars. You know, like this is a record for us. And like twenty three million dollars. That doesn't sound like very much, but if you think about, if you look at New Line Cinema's filmography. They had they had Freddy movies carrying them for the first six years, and then they had uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles carrying them for like the next four or five years, and then like oh, yeah. if if the mask hadn't hit, I don't know where they would have been financially. They might have been out of business, or someone would have bought them up sooner. But this is like a run. If you look at after the mask, it is almost nonstop hits. Oh God, yes, after I mean, well, yeah, no, that came out in '94, and some of the other movies I mentioned. Like well, ones that came out later. Right. Well, they had Dumb and Dumber. They had Mortal Kombat. They had Seven. Um, there's a bunch of them I'm missing in there. I mean, there's still a couple that were kind of duds, like Senior Trip. But you know, that money, that movie made money on video. You know it. <laughs> oh yes. No, I had it on video. <laughs> Senior Trip was one of my favorite. Was one of my favorite National Lampoon movies. And, and uh, it's when I first saw Jeremy Renner. Yeah. Um, the Mask is from Chuck Russell. Now Chuck Russell had uh, a big hit with. Um, the Dream Warriors, the third New Line, uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie. But then he went over to Columbia and did The Blob, and as good as The Blob is now, and everybody loves it, it was a massive flop, and it almost killed his career immediately. And if it wasn't for The Mask, I don't know if he would have ever made any more studio films, and thank goodness this worked. And he's really good at balancing comedy and special effects and performances. I think Jim Carrey is really great in this, and you show it shows that he could have been more than um, just Ace Ventura, the in loving color obnoxious guy. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, even at the beginning scenes when he's like giving those two tickets to that uh, one coworker, and he wanted to, you know, hope that he'd, he'd uh, end up going with her instead of her like a friend coming in last minute. Yeah, you know. Ipkiss. I when it comes to, like romance and relationships. Stanley Ipkiss. I will always remember that name. But it's um. I was gonna say. Oh, I can't remember now. My brain farted. Oops. Is it a particular character? That no. You oh, can't oh. The name of? No. What I was gonna say was, in this movie, is a big part of why swing music got hot in remember for like the last half of the 90s swing music was in tons of movies we got singles you know like the uh, big bad voodoo daddy cherry poppin daddies uh brian setzer orchestra uh there's a couple other in there the squirrel Nut zippers you know those guys royal crown review they all had you know uh, hit singles and all of a sudden everybody's like i guess swing is back what the hell <laughs> yeah i know for sure oh yeah especially with harry connick singing that one song yeah well and they had well what's the song this um you and me and the bottle makes three tonight. Is that from this or is that from Swingers? Because Swingers was another reason why swing uh, music got so big again. Oh, that was from this for sure. Okay. Hey, hey, Pachuco. And then what's the uh, oh Cuban Pete? Now that was a, that was a big fun number. I love watching that. <laughs> That's easily one of my favorite scenes. There's a there's a thing that I do from this movie all the time is uh, he does it like six times in the movie, and I don't think people really notice it that much, but do you know the part where he would say something funny, go, I, 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 and take off? Yes. Oh, God. I, 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 I. 
that would be one of his trademark things. I love for that. Sure. The comic is have... the comic's a lot more violent, so at least they toned it down a bit for the movie. It still got crazy violence, but it's really cartoonish. Oh, absolutely. I mean, knowing that you know Jim Carrey having a big following, and you know kids are probably going to see something like this because it looked it looks like it would appeal to kids. Yeah. And and then. Yeah, just like all the little crazy cartoon shenanigans, especially with the Chuck Avery uh, cartoons that would appear, definitely did have an influence on his wackiness. The Tex Avery. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Who else is? Oh yeah, Richard Jenny was in this. Uh, great supporting cast. Cameron Diaz. I think this was like one of her first films. I think I think he is introducing her. Yes, I think so too. Oh my god, and then again, she's been so big since then. Well, um... oh, I think she did retire recently. Yeah, I haven't seen her in like 10 years. I think the last movie she did was Sex Tape. Or was that one with... Uh... Oh, God, it's that one where she's with... Uh... She's she's with Leslie Mann, and she's sleeping with her husband, and he's sleeping with someone else. Oh, I don't know it's... this one. Yeah, I think it came out a few years ago. I can't remember. It was like kind of a rom-com kind of thing. Hmm. Yeah, but, no, it was actually pretty funny. But it's a big, fun, festive. I love this era of comic book movies because they had that 40s vibe. A lot of it is because of Burton's Batman, you know, because then we had The Rocketeer, Dick Tracy, The Shadow, Phantom, you know, The Mask. Clearly has a heavy influence of Art Deco. And I kind of miss that. Now everything looks kind of flat visually. Uh, or it looks so gray. I want, I want you know, like, I want a, another movie where they have Art Deco. That's why I think I like the first Avenger so much. Right. Gosh. Now, when you say art deco, like uh, as an art decoration, like more practical effects? Or... No, no. Art deco is a, a style, a design style that they used from like the 1920s to the 1950s. And then it turned into um, post, post, mm, I can't remember all of a sudden. I used to know these things. <laughs> um, postmodern, no, the 50s was postmodern, uh, and then I don't remember what came after that. But there's a very hard edges. I'll, I'll show you some pictures of what Art Deco looks like in uh, a, a Batman the Animated Series. That the look of that is oh. Art Deco. You know, lots of shadows, lots of hard square lines and stuff like that. Big circles. Yes. Um, this started a very fruitful relationship for Dark Horse Comics and Universal Studios. Because after that, they didn't turn down any more projects. They're like, "Oh, we fucked up with the mask," <laughs> but but then they did. What, uh, have we, what have we not done? Is the, is the question. Yeah, they did the Hellboy movies. They well, the first two, the first two Hellboy movies, Time Cop, uh, Barbed Wire, the Virus is one of them. That was a huge flop, but you know that was with Universal and. For a while, Dark Horse was getting a lot of movies made. I mean, they are responsible in a heavy way for getting Aliens vs. Predator made. Oh, yeah, because weren't they the ones uh, publishing those yeah. comics? Yeah, they licensed the characters, they put them in a comic book together, and then Fox said, what? This is a hit. Uh, they also did Mystery Men. So, while financially, <laughs> financially they weren't all successful, but I think creatively, I think Dark Horse had a very good vision for what they wanted to do. Oh, gosh, even, yes, even looking at uh, Mystery Man, absolutely. The, oh uh, the, I mean, this is the year for Jim Carrey. Three hits in 1994, and 1995 is going to be no different because he's going to have two huge hits there. It's not till Cable Guy where he stumbles a little bit. It's just so interesting, though. Every movie he did was a massive hit. Oh, absolutely. I know. Like Again, he was just so funny and great to watch and like one of the best entertainers of the 90s. All right, so what is our next film? Okay, our next film... 
Oh gosh. Airheads. This this one's a little bit harder to find, folks. It was on HBO until like two months ago, and they pulled it. I don't know what's going to happen. Fox is basically throwing away a lot of their catalog. If it wasn't a big hit, and it was from the you know '90s or earlier, it's basically disappearing. So, I I mean, just go find a copy wherever you can. Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, but hey, considering there's a renaissance going on right now, I'm pretty sure it's probably going to get some. Uh, more popularity. Well, I wish that they would license that Disney would license out their own movies and the Fox movies to like Shout Factor, somebody who's going to give it love and care and, and fix those, you know, clean up the prints, give it extra features. And oh, absolutely, I had this soundtrack. I listened to this all the time, and I really thought this was going to be a big hit. I think the studio even thought it was going to be a big hit. You know, the late summer is like the first or second week of August, and they were like, "This is going to ride out for like six weeks as a, a, a hit." And it just didn't happen. And I, I still don't know. I think it opened up against Clear and Present Danger. You know, I mean, but that's not the same audience. That was a huge hit. Uh, maybe In the Army Now. I don't know what it was that people weren't interested in. And, and Brendan Fraser had three flops in a row in 1994. It nearly killed him. Um, you know, this is Sandler's first, like, uh, main character role. Steve Buscemi's now in, the, in a studio system instead of doing independent movies. And, uh, I mean, Michael Lehman really needed a hit because he was coming off Hudson Hawk. And at the time, everybody hated Hudson Hawk. Now we're kind of, like, okay with it. It's it's, right. it's packed to the fucking gills. And this is the era when we would see movies like this where they're just packed to the rafters with so many stars. And I don't know when that started, maybe Wayne's World, because it had, like, 30 different, like, you know, characters in there that were filled by people you knew or up-and-comers. You know, there's Coneheads, um, So I Married an Axe Murderer, This... Uh, greedy, which we'll discuss in the next episode. We're just an all-star comedy cast, and yet didn't connect. It, they did on video because it was played on Comedy Central a million times, you know. But in theaters, no one cared, and I, I always wonder why. Yeah, no, honestly, uh, considering uh, what I think there was like that particular uh, GQ interview recently where Brendan Fraser and Adam Sandler were talking to each other, and um, I think there was just like particular phrase that was used to describe Adam Sandler and, he, and Brendan Fraser like said like no he's not that phrase he's just an overlooked champion yeah 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 I remember that yeah the uh and I was like that's one of the most positive things uh that, that that's actually one of the most positive uh positive phrases that could be used to describe this film I mean, they are kind of dopes. I think what they do is they're impulsive and they don't think before they act. And then, like, every time they try to get out of it, it goes wrong and they keep getting stuck in this situation. I think that's why you start rooting for them. And a lot of people, like, on the other side, like, you know, um, oh, I can't remember his name all of a sudden. Uh, Joe Montana. Joe Montana and Ernie Hudson and stuff like that. They're, they're actually fighting for them. Pretty much, yeah, in the end. Oh, God. And then, of course, there's Michael McKean who's just wanting to... Because <laughs> he was a, he was the sleazy he could he was the sleazy owner of the radio station you know yeah. he was the president and running oper, uh, running operations oh gosh Michael uh, Richards being a complete and utter spaz this is the closest he'll ever come to doing Kramer I watched a uh, I watched um, Trial and Error which is the movie he did towards his run on uh, Seinfeld and he's trying so hard to shake the Kramer persona. And I feel sorry for him because every time he got hired for something, they forced it into a Kramer situation. And and that's a big reason why he quit, why he walked away, because he couldn't stand. Because he was like an Andy Kaufman kind of guy. 
know, really challenging, difficult comedy that sometimes makes you uncomfortable. And for him to constantly be forced to repeat his Kramer character had to piss him off. Oh, God, just like what they did with uh, Andy Kaufman, now that you mentioned him, regarding the whole life gun thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ugh. But yeah, no. Um, again, yeah, I forget what exactly the particular motif and the theme of this movie was what, regarding the... Uh, like the social satire of it. I think I think a lot of it was I think it was commentary on the fact that grunge had been bought up, which was something authentic and unique to a very particular area of this country, Seattle, and then was manipulated, marketed, and, and just turned into another crass commercial thing by the time you know, like I mean, just a year later all of a sudden it's because everybody needs to wear flannel, everybody needs to have droopy gross hair, you know, it's like uh, grunge is the hip new thing and uh, you know that's the kind of thing that I think what this was commenting on is just crass commercialization just money 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 exactly yeah and I think that point was kind of made within the movie especially like at the end when they were um, they were they needed the lip sync for their live music video and they're like no we're not doing that they didn't cave into it you know ACDC is the only band I know that shoots all of their videos live. That's why they never really look like movies. They always look like they're just done on a stage. Is because oh, they, wow. ha- they have to perform the song live. They will not do uh, dubbing or, or voiceover. What do you want to call it? Lip syncing. Right. But man, again, that, that, when you mention the soundtrack, I mean, there's so many great songs. I mean, just that opening song by Motorhead featuring Ice T. Boulder Hell. <laughs> Yes, and then of course, oh no, the mosh fit, the mosh fit scene where Chris Farley, you know, playing a cop is trying to find uh, Brendan Fraser's girlfriend to get a copy of the tape that they need to play for these, uh, to play over the radio. <laughs> and he gets involved with that mosh fit where uh, White Zombie's playing. Oh man, that, that was such a dope track, and it was so, <laughs> and that must have been a lot of fun to get involved with that mosh fit. And everybody loved Chris Farley. Yeah, I mean, he was really building up steam at this point. I mean, he's just uh, he's just around the corner from Tommy Boy. Um, yeah, I had this. We listened to this co- uh, in college all the time. But the funny thing is, now I haven't listened to it in so long that I don't know. No way out. Of course, is the the fake um, Airheads or Lone Rangers song. It's by Degeneration, which I absolutely love that song. Um, oh yeah. Uh, what is the other one that was in there? Um, Stuttering John, I'll talk my way out of it. I remember that one being really uh, cool. Uh, which he wasn't even really a singer. He was the he was um, Baba Booey, I think, or something like that. On um, what's the show again? Howard Stern show. He was just like a side character on Howard Stern. I don't think he was Baba Booey. It's another character though. But um, we want the airwaves by the Ramones is my favorite track on this. Even though it's not original to this, it's from an older album. But I love it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, considering. Uh, it goes so well with that movie too, considering what they had to do. Um, <laughs> the sh- <laughs> My- there's one more thing I do want to say, like the list of demands to get the insanity plea. <laughs> <laughs> Naked pictures of B. Arthur will always be stuck in my head. <laughs> My, my favorite line from this, though, is when he's trying to get Pip to be... Uh, God, no, there's so many lines in this. So I ain't farting on no snare drum is one of my favorites. But um, I love it when he's like... Uh, uh, when he's trying to get him to be tough, he's like, I'll stab, you, I'll stab your head with my dick! <laughs> <laughs> I know, dude. I couldn't stop laughing at that. It's like, oh, God. How many chases do they have to go through? I mean, considering Steve Buscemi and Adam Sandler do have some history working together. Yeah. Um. Did you... 
happened to notice that Alan Covert was the cop outside the building when when Pip was doing the robot trying to get away or whatever? Yes. Oh gosh. <laughs> I do. Not, yeah. No. Now that you now that you mentioned that, rewatching it, I'm like, oh god, yeah, wait, that's Alan Covert. Oh shit. Now I want to go watch I, Grandma's Boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that again, that was a flop in the theaters that made. Yeah, but that was a huge hit on video. That's the only movie he ever starred in. Maybe he just was like, oh fuck, that didn't work for me, so I don't want to do that again. But I thought he was great in that movie. Oh, absolutely. I know. I mean, again, it's not his fault that the movie didn't find an audience. Plus, it wasn't even marketed or pushed out there as much. Oh, it was like the first week of January. They didn't give a shit. Yeah, no, that was a problem. All right, well, speaking of not giving a shit, here is the last movie of this episode is Radio Land Murders, where Universal (laughs) just said, eh, fuck it, it's George Lucas. We'll say yes, but then we'll just dump it. I think no. It's it, obviously it was never going to be a big hit. There's not enough names attached to this, and not it's not really a hip. It's such a unique, odd story to tell. Um, I'm fascinated by old time radio. I listen to old time radio. I'm not kidding. Almost every single night when I go to sleep, um, the production that went into this alone is fascinating. But also the fact that there is <laughs> the people are getting killed left and right. <laughs> but yes, absolutely. That's what I was going to mention, the production value of it, giving it that old, what, 40s and 50s uh, vintage feel. Yeah. I love looking at, like I said, this is Art Deco. I love looking at them. But I also love the fact that they chose so many of these great character actors. None of them are really stars. I think Christopher Lloyd is really the only name here that would appear above a title. You know, And he's only an and. He, he only shows up like maybe five minutes, but he's funny as hell every time. Yeah, he's the sound man. He's the one like creating all the sound effects for, like, Whichever show was playing. You know, George Lucas's relationship with Willard Hyuk and, uh, shit, his wife, um, can't remember his name, uh, the name of his wife, uh, uh, Katz, something, whatever. It, it, it must have been hard for him because everything that they got attached to basically bombed. Because, uh, they did, they did hit big with American Graffiti, but then they had, like, Best Defense, which is Dudley Moore's worst movie. Eddie Murphy's maybe worst movie, too. Howard the Duck, and then there's a long gap, and there's Radio Land Murders, and that also flopped. That had to sting a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's a damn shame that that movie was a flop, honestly. I mean, it was just, like, uh, just so quick, so, you know, kind of like with, um, Noises Off. You know, that fast pace, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, very quick-witted, uh, like, dialogue, setting up these situations. A lot of uh, slapstick comedy. Yeah, it's funny. There are a lot of movies like this where, like, Once Upon a Crime, like you said, Noises Off, where there's a lot of cast members that you are very familiar with, a very fun, fast uh, plot, and it they just didn't connect for whatever reason. There's Passed Away, too. That was one that was filled with a bunch of stars. And I wonder what it is that turns people off. Is it... Were we so obsessed with movie stars at this time that we needed to focus on just a couple leads? I mean, this is like peak time when we're focused on the big A-listers, and this just didn't have it. It was all just a bunch of character TV, you know, kind of guys. Uh, and also the fact that I mean, I don't know what I was up against, but it only made one point four million dollars. Yikes! I know, damn, which is a damn shame. And I love the production. Oh god, especially the. the- rotating uh, stage constantly, especially when Billy Barty is trying to do his number and there's just absolute chaos. And But I'm here for shit like that, honestly. Yeah. It could not detract me. Um, uh, Stephen Tobolowski, if you look at his filmography around this time, 
He was like in every movie. It's insane how much work he got over like a two or three year period of time. Because we have, I think there's uh, uh, Groundhog Day, of course, is the one that most people know him from. Um, there was uh, Thelma Louise. There was Basic Instinct. Um, Memoirs of the Invisible Man. Single White Female. Sneakers. Uh, and I can't really remember anything after Space Radio. Falls. Well, that's way before that, though. That's 87. Right. But he was on a run, man. And it's just really interesting how some actors can get a ton of work and then just kind of slowly fades away. Like, whatever happened to that guy? But if I look at his filmography, I bet you I bet you it's fully loaded. I bet you he's still working a lot. I would not doubt it. Oh, no. I think he was in a season of uh, the show uh, Silicon. I'm pretty sure he was. He was like one of the CEOs trying to buy out. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. I got to watch that again. I really love that show. I don't Damn good show. Goddamn Mike Judge. <sighs> but yeah, Jeffrey Tambor was in this. Michael McKeon. Michael, oh god, Michael Lerner as uh, Detective Cross. Oh, jeez. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Bobcat. So... And, and let's not forget uh, Mary Stuart Masterson is the other co-lead in this. Oh, Brian Benben. I forgot to mention that part. Brian Benben was, you probably don't know who this is. From but, Dream On. Okay, so you actually, I, was called. I thought maybe you were too young for Dream On because there was a time when that was like the first, I think it was literally the first HBO production from a studio instead of some of the independent thing that they bought from someone else. Where it was like, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, they had signed on for, I think it was on for like five or six years. And then like the second it was over with, his career just faded away. It's, it's kind of a shame because if you watch Comedy Central during the 90s, Dream On was on like four times a day. It was crazy. Oh, yeah. No, like, honestly, that was like one of the big shows that was talked about like growing up around that time. Yeah. And it's a very... Like, even me being a kid, I like, you know would hear about how much it was talked about yeah it's a very difficult show to, they can't do reruns anymore they lost you know the time the only license see if, if you haven't seen dream on what it is about a guy who constantly fantasizes like walter mitty that kind of character where he goes into alternate realities but this is always using clips uh from old tv shows and movies well eventually those licenses lapsed and they can't put anything out on dv they put the first season out but it was so expensive, and it didn't make that much money, so they just moved on. Which is a shame, because that's the same thing happened to Drew Carey. There's a lot of music clips, and they just they can't, they won't put the money out for it. No, you know, it's an, it's an absolute damn shame, just because they can't. Ugh. I think Warner Brothers being cheap. There's no way it costs that much for that music, and just you know what, license it out to someone like Shout Factory, who will put the money, and and fans who will pay a hundred dollars or more for the series set. Don't put them out in seasons. Don't fucking do that because every time that happens, they're like, well, season three didn't sell enough. Let's not release season four. I'm like, but it's the last season. Just do it, dicks. Exactly. For sure. Exactly. I mean, especially like with so much time has elapsed, it's like, yeah, just release a box of the entire series. Yeah, I'm still waiting for season three of Parker Lewis Can't Lose, and and it's so irritating. We're like almost to the finish line. You know, that's kind of like what Capcom did with one of their video games. Like, they put out a uh, remake or uh, remaster of the f- the first game instead of just releasing a whole collection of them. Like, well, of course it wasn't going to sell that much. You barely put it out there, and it's only the first one. People want to play the other ones. Yeah. I, I just feel like That's- in 1994, yeah. Universal just was not focused on Radio Land Murders at all. They had just come off of Time Cop, which was making a ton of money, and they're getting ready for you know the, the Christmas season, which I'm trying to remember what they released. They, they, it was River Wild was... It was River Wild, Time Cop, then this. Uh, I know Street Fighter's in there somewhere, and there was some big November movie, and they were just like, nah, we don't need to bother. Did they do Richie Rich? I think they did. 
I'm pretty sure. Let me check. Up, let me so check. So it up, sounds right? like that's the kind of thing that they were just like, eh, let's not waste the production money. You know, I mean, the promotional money on Radioland Murders. But it is a lot of fun if you're into retro stuff, and especially if, like me, I'm fascinated with radio, and especially old time radio. It is a good one to go find. Yeah, but as you mentioned, like all the people that were in this movie, like as you mentioned, Bobcat, Goldthwait, um, oh gosh, Harvey Corman, uh, another one of the writers too. No, I was wrong. Uh, Richie Rich is from Warner Brothers. Oh no, no, no I'm talking about. Uh, I was talking about Radio Land Murders. But, no, I yeah, was no, I was looking to see if Richie Rich was from Universal Studios. Right. Okay. Dang, I was just about to look that up too. You beat me to it. <laughs> Fastest hands <laughs> in the West. <laughs> you got me, partner. <laughs> uh, anyway, but yeah, no. Again, Peter McNichol, all those people that were in the writers' room, and then there was that one person who wasn't a writer. Uh, Whatever her name was, she always came up with the best ideas. I'm like, she needs a little pay raise. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah, And that was, again, the conflicts uh, going on within uh, each department. Oh, man. That was funny. (laughs) Especially when Bobcat Goldblatt was the one about to lose it. (laughs) Uh, Again, for me, it was just an absolute joy to watch. The um, If You Liked Brain Donors, the movie we discussed, I think... I think it was two seasons ago, the 1992 season. Yes. Um, the British guy, the, you know, the one that was from European Vacation, he is the director of this, Mel Smith, and he has a very particular tone that's kind of fast-paced and goofy. I think he would have made more success a few years later when he would do Being the Movie, but uh, his first uh-huh. one, it's a very small independent movie from 1985 called Morons from Outer Space, and it's a lot of fun. You should go find it. <laughs> Morons from Outer Space. Yeah. I feel, I feel, oh God, is that along the line? Is that what uh, inspired people, to, uh, the creators, to make uh, Butt Ugly Martians? Would you say that? I don't know what Butt Ugly, Butt Ugly Martians is. <laughs> oh, it's an old animated show from when I was a kid. Oh. Probably, probably overlooked. Yeah, I mean, there's a big age difference between the two of us. So I think there's a, a line where I was stopped watching. I stopped watching cartoons, and you started, and we don't meet up again until Adult Swim. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right, so that Adult Swim does have that magic. That is our five films. We have one more episode to go, and uh, I'm gonna let you know now. It's Wagons East. I think highly underrated western. John Candy's last film. I think last film. Um, the Ref, Greedy. Uh, The Scout and River Wild. Of course. Okay, good. All right. Yeah, that... those... hmm? What? Okay, now I'm trying to remember. Okay, Wagons East. I think I remember watching briefly. Like when I was a kid. Yeah, it was him and Richard Lewis. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. I never got around to watching it until, like, because I've been Western crazy lately. And I was like, this thing was a huge flop. Everybody hated it. I'm having fun. Yeah, I don't know. Like, the hate sometimes for some movies is just unjustifiable. Yeah. All right, so we'll see you then. You know where to find us. Jacob, send us out. All right, everybody. Uh, Be excellent to each other. Namaste and good luck. And be excellent to each other.